Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. So tonight, let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, reading from the verse number 25. Brethren, pray for us. Greets all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This church, we have noted, is a church that is waiting for the Lord's return. Such an expectation of the second coming is, of course, a positive thing. It should not be looked upon as just a niche feature of some peculiar Christians who have an interest in these things, but rather every single believer should have a longing and an expectation that Christ is returning in glory. Should be our burden, should be our concern, it should be our interest. We're told regarding the conversion of this church that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true gods, and we rejoice in that. But it also says, and to wait for his son from heaven. And so the very beginning of their conversion, the very beginning of their salvation is this expectation and this waiting for Christ to return. And yet, in this church, we see that the expectation of the Lord's return had raised concerns. Concerns about those who had passed. Chapter 4, the wonder is, what about those who have died? What about those who are asleep? And Paul assuages their fears that the dead in Christ shall rise first. It's raised concerns. It's also raised conflict and bred conflict among the church. There were those who again had fallen into error regarding the Lord's return. And Paul has to correct them in this epistle and especially in 2 Thessalonians. And so there's division. Division due to doctrine. And the division due to the doctrine of Christ's return has, I believe, pushed Paul to finish this letter with words that emphasize unity. Note these last verses. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren. And then verse 27, that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Note, three times the word brethren is used. Twice the word all is used in connection with that term. Great all the brethren, read unto all the holy brethren. These are words that are emphasizing unity. A church that is troubled with division. Paul is finishing this letter of exhortation and he's pushing the thought that they are united together in Christ Jesus. The word brethren is chosen, not saints or holy ones, but rather those who are part of one family. One father, one elder brother, Christ Jesus, and they're all part of that one common family of the elect of God. The verses, they reverberate with the thought of unity. And so in light of that, you see that Paul is exhorting the people, verse 25, to be unified in prayer. Brethren, pray for us. He exhorts them to be united in charity. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. He exhorts them in verse 27 to be united under the word. This epistle read unto all the holy brethren. 
And he finishes by reminding them of their unity in their shared weakness, in their shared need for the grace of Christ Jesus. And so I hope you see that as the concluding structure here. We're seeing very clearly Paul has a focus and a mind. He's not just simply filling up the page at the end of the letter. He's deliberately pointing out to the people at the end of this epistle, here are things that you must be united in and about. And so let's take these in turn. First of all, please note, he exhorts them to be united in prayer. Unity in prayer. Brethren, pray for us. Again, we should not go far away from this. That as a family of God, we come together to pray as one family. And the family of God, of course, you think of God's purpose for the family. And the idea was the family would have a unity of purpose and function. Undoubtedly, sin has broken many families, but in God's original plan for the family, there was the husband, the wife, the children, and they're all exercised under one household with a unity of purpose and focus. And so it is to be in the family of God, that when the church prays, we are to pray in a unified fashion. Yes, we are focused towards the Lord. The word for pray here is that general word that is used particularly in relating to prayer unto God. Not asking men for things, but particularly approaching the triune God in humility and in reverence. It's a family coming in reverence to their heavenly Father. And of course, Paul is exhorting the believers here to really live in the same fashion that the early church did in the book of Acts. We know from Acts chapter 1, before Pentecost, these all continued with one accord in prayer. This one-mindedness, that's what the word means, a a unity of mind and thought and thinking. Similarly, in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost comes, they were all with one accord in one place. This unity of the church in prayer. Now such, again, I understand this, such can happen when you pray in the morning. And I pray in the morning and somebody else prays in the morning. We, we have a unity of our focus and our purpose. But a unified church in prayer is particularly seen in the congregational church prayer meeting. Here we really express our unity. For we come together with this, this focus and this resolve. We're going to pray together. And as we pray together, then we, we have these expressions of agreement There may be the odd sigh here, or the odd grunt somewhere else, or the amen. There's a sense which we're praying together for the things of God, and we're doing so with one accord. But what is this unity in? What are we praying for as a church? Again, all that Paul says here is, brethren, pray for us. He's highlighting the fact that he's not alone as he writes this letter. Uh, The letter opens with the fact that he's with uh, Timothy and Sylvanus. The three of them are laboring together at this point in Paul's ministry. And so what he's expressing desires for is they would pray for those who are involved in the ministry of the word. Now I'm going to show you here just several of references where Paul particularly asks for prayer. And you'll see a consistency in the theme. Let's take the one closest to this to begin with. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Again, there are several, I'm not looking at all of these, but there are, because there are several times when Paul, in a sense of humility, asks the church to pray for him. He's not above expressing his need. This is the mighty apostle. He knows his authority. He knows that he's called of God, but he understands his need for the people of God to pray for him. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. You see here, he is recognizing the fact that as they are to pray for the success of the word, so they are to pray for God to supply and for God to keep the men of God safe in the work. Pray for us that the word of God would have free course, that it would run freely without hindrance, that the word of God would simply go forward successfully. And he realizes for the word of God to be successful, there is the need for God's people to pray for the ministers of the word and for those who are missionaries seeking to make the gospel known. The connection's there. If you're going to pray for success in gospel evangelism, you must pray for the people of God who are laboring in that task. Brethren, pray for us. He understands the need for the people of God to pray for his safety and indeed for God's supply in his ministry. And then go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and again, I'll just simply say as we turn there that each of these references, they do illustrate the point that the minister of the Word of God, the missionary, are vitally important in the success of the gospel. And so as we come to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, uh, an aspect of that is going to be praying for those who are laboring in the word. And so Paul, having dealt with the armor of God, again, note the situation here, he's thinking about conflict. Second Thessalonians, conflict. And in the climate of conflict, pray for God's servants. And now in the climate of conflict and warfare, he closes the, uh, the, the language of the armor of God, praying always, verse 18, and then verse number 19, and for me. In other words, I'm pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He's praying again for the people of God to pray for him that he would know success and freedom in the proclamation of Christ Jesus in the context of conflict again. And then turn back once more, this time to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, again, you're seeing the pattern here in these prayers. Romans 15 and the verse number 29. Paul says, and I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. And I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. Again, there's, a, there's, some, there's some very particular focus in this prayer. He's got a gift to give to the saints in Jerusalem, verse number 31. But again, please note, he's asking for prayer for the sake of Christ, verse number 30. For the sake of Christ's name, for the sake of Christ's honor that there would be the advancement of the gospel of Christ. Therefore, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I'm praying for myself, says Paul. Please pray with me. And again, verse 31 makes it clear that these prayers come in the situation and the context of conflict. This is the day in which we live. The Word of God is again finding it being met with obstacles in so many nations 
And it is our responsibility as we pray through our bulletin and pray through the rotation of our churches and mission fields that we pray for God's servants that the word of God would go forward with power for the glory of Christ's name. One last reference, Hebrews chapter 13. Again, you'll appreciate there's debate and controversy regarding who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. And this, by the way, is one of the arguments where people will say, well, this perhaps was written by the Apostle Paul because he finishes... He finishes in a similar way that he finishes other letters. Verse number 18 of Hebrews 13. Pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Again, there's a, you've got to add some details to this, but it seems to be the case that there are those who are opposing the ministry. And Paul is saying, in light of that opposition, we're seeking to live with a good conscience. We're seeking to live honestly with integrity, that the word of God would not be hindered. Therefore, pray for us, pray for our character, pray for our conduct, so that the message of the gospel can go forward. And so there you see some things you, could, you can pray for. Pray for the man of God to have opportunities. Pray that they take those opportunities. Pray that they're kept preserved from opposition. Pray that they're kept pure in their character and their conduct. These are things you should pray for, for our missionaries in, in Mexico or Liberia or the ministers here in, in North America. Praying for these men. Praying for us. Brethren, pray for us. These are various prayers for the success of gospel ministry. You see, if we see this church in Thessalonica, and we see them as waiting for Christ's return. We see that such a waiting involves a burden to pray for the extension of Christ's kingdom. There is a discrepancy between someone who says they long for Christ's return, but has no burden to pray for Christ's kingdom. They come together. We long to see Christ coming, but we long to see him coming in his glory with the completion of the work of redemption having been accomplished. All the elect gathered, and we long to see thy churches full. Brethren, pray for us. That's the thrust of this opening section, this final, uh, this final part of the epistle. So secondly then, unity in prayer is followed by unity in charity. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. This is Paul really saying to the believers, please greet one another from me. He's acknowledging his desire that they would have a greeting for all the brethren. He's not favoritizing some. He's not discriminating against others. He's acknowledging the fact that in this church there is a necessity of expressing their Christian love in this fashion. The kiss. It is in that culture, in that form, an expression of affection. Peter refers to it in 1 Peter 5, verse 14, as the kiss of charity, the kiss of love. And so when Paul says, greet with a holy kiss, he's saying, greet those whom I love, express my love for them in this particular form. Now, there are several references to the holy kiss in the writings of the early church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century. You see this in some of their writings. It's a custom Again, the custom is part of their cultural expression. And again, when Justin Martyr writes, he clarifies it. The men kiss the men and the women kiss the woman. 
That's what happened. There was chastity involved in this. This was not chaos. It was a holy kiss. It was an affectionate kiss. Again, far removed from our own particular context. But as you see it in the language here, we should understand it in terms of an exhortation towards Christian charity. And Paul has already commended the church in this regard. Look at chapter 3 and the verse number 12. He says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one another and toward all men. Now, the very fact, he says, that they should increase and abound implies that they already have this act of love the one for the other. Indeed, in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And so what he's really saying is that by the work of the Spirit of God, Christians do actively love one another. And then they're to express that in these forms. They're to demonstrate that love. Their love, if I can borrow from John's uh, first letter, their love is to be in word, or sorry, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's sincere love. Not just in word, not just in tongue, but also in deed and in truth. It's an expression of Christian love. And thus, when we come to think of waiting for Christ's return, we are reminded again that we wait for Christ's return in community, in loving community. Now, before I say more of that, let me just give you some information regarding one of the commentators, Young, who says this, Too little attention is given to the practice of Christian greeting today. The perfunctory way in which we so often greet one another falls far short of what Paul has in mind. It should be a matter of conscience to us to greet fellow Christians in a way that reflects our relation to them and our affection for them. The Christian church, after all, he says, is not to be a collection of floating individuals, but a community of love bound together in its common faith by cords of sincere affection. And this is to find expression in warm greetings. Again, we should take heed to this. This is an exhortation of the Apostle Paul regarding Christian greetings. Again, I do believe there's a cultural aspect to this. And yet still, in some cultures, there are still in Christian churches, there are those who will greet each other with a kiss, a sanctified and a holy kiss that is completely appropriate. Nothing wrong with it at all. But... Whilst we may be uncomfortable with such a thing, at the same point we must make sure that we greet each other warmly. That we convey our heart to each other in our greetings, not in pretense, but sincerely. It's not a matter of pretending and putting on a show every Lord's Day when you greet each other, but there ought to be genuine care in terms of how we greet each other. One of the things I've certainly seen over the years of ministry in various churches is at times I've realized that people are offended because someone ignores someone else or because there's a perceived coldness in the greeting. And it brings disunity. And so it should be part of our mindset that if we are a Christian community and we have love for each other, that we show that in our greetings. That we're not cold and distant with each other, even in the way that we may say, good morning and how are you? These things, I don't believe, are insignificant. They're not the most important thing, but they're also not insignificant. And so as we wait for Christ's return, we wait in the sense of Christian community. We seek to support each other. 
practically and prayerfully, and we see to strengthen each other in terms of encouragement and in terms of exhortation. All of these things we've seen, uh, we saw them earlier on in this part of the epistle. You take verse number 14, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. Here is, here is Christian love. And we're to show that Christian love in our ongoing relationships, the one with the other. And so we're seeing here, Paul is closing this letter. He understands there's disunity due to doctrine regarding Christ's return. And so he says, be unified in prayer, be unity in your love, in your charity. And thirdly, be unified under the word. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Some people have found this verse somewhat uncomfortable. It seems that the charge is overstated. He, he brings the Lord's name into this charge. I charge you by the Lord. And it may well be the case that this letter was initially given to the church leaders. And thus the exhortation comes to them. Remember, we've, we've thought about the, the, those who, who are over them in the Lord in, in the earlier verses. And so it may well be the letter comes to the leaders and Paul is saying to them, on the authority of Christ Jesus, this letter must be read, not just in the session level, not just among the elders, but to all the brethren. This is God's word for the entire company. It certainly intrigued people. It is an intriguing verse. And the reading of the letter in terms of the the practicalities of that is very, very obvious. Paul makes the point over in chapter 2, verse number 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, he can't be there personally, and so he writes this letter. It's his desire, verse 10 of chapter 3, it's his desire that he would make perfect that which is lacking in their faith. He wants them to mature, and so he, he writes this letter. And the letter addresses the issues. But there's more. Paul's language in this penultimate verse of chapter 5 indicates his conviction regarding his own authority. The public reading of a document such as this puts his letters on a power, on a par, sorry, with the Old Testament scriptures, which are read in the synagogues. And you see this in the account of the early church, again, in the early church fathers, that they were reading the letters of the apostles alongside the Old Testament scriptures. They were equal in authority. And so right at the very beginning of the church, the apostles are saying, our letters come with God's authority. They're inspired. Again, the idea of the church canon, the doctrines, the books of the Bible, people say, well, that wasn't developed until the 4th century. No, the people who got the epistles to begin with understood these letters were the words of God. And they came with apostolic authority. You see, turn across to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or, or epistle. And so he's emphasizing again that what they teach them has authority. They're to stand by it. And that teaching could be verbal in terms of spoken word, or it could be written in terms of the epistles. Remember, the believers in this church understood that the words that Paul spoke were the very words of God. 
Not the words of men, but they were the very words of God through the apostle. And so as he tells the leaders to read this letter, he's emphasizing again that the people of God are to be united under the word of God. This is God's word for them. And they must come together to be under the word of God, to be governed by the word of God, to be submissive to the word of God, to be directed by the word of God, to be encouraged by the word of God. They do so in unity. They come together for this experience. Read it out to all of them. And the sense is the church coming together in unity under the word of the Lord. You see, as we wait for the Lord's return, it is vital we wait when the word of God governs our hearts. We're not waiting doing our own thing. We're waiting being guided by the word of God in all of our actions. And so this unity is a united commitment to the word of God. That you get the whole church saying, we must have the Bible. We must be led by the Bible. We must be taught by the Bible. There's not this division in the church Some say they want the church to go this direction or that direction. Rather, there's a unity. We're under the word. United in submission to the word. Keeping each other accountable to the word. You see that in the second letter. And so this unity is to be a unity that is in and under the word of the Lord. Unity in prayer. Unity in charity. Unity under the word. And finally, unity in their shared weakness. The grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and by inference it is be with you all. That's the idea involved here. Paul opens up and signs off with this prayer and this recognition that every believer stands in need of the grace of Christ Jesus. This grace, of course, is being used in a very broad sense. It is every spiritual blessing. It is a reminder to believers, though once they came to Christ, their need for Christ does not get lesser day by day. They always live in absolute need of the grace of Christ Jesus. It is the grace of Christ whereby they stand. They stand in access before the throne of God. It is by the grace of Christ that they can pray together as a church. It is by the grace of Christ that they have the scriptures as a church. It is by the grace of Christ that they love one another as a church. It's Christ's grace working in them that enables all these things to come to pass. It is the grace of Christ that is the power whereby they live the Christian life. Paul understood this. He was told, my grace is sufficient for you. He understood that Christ's power was made perfect in his weakness. We are what we are by the grace of Christ. His working in us. We are weak in ourselves. We are saved and kept by Christ's grace. Our need is always for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way whereby you can stand before the Lord. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. 
We preach Christ crucified.